Are you ready? You know, I was podcasting with Lancaster a while back. Oh, yeah? A couple weeks ago. The OPA, they have mic stands. Nice ones. Yeah. Nice mic stands. Uh-huh. But the problem with a mic stand is that you often have to, you know, look away or do something else, and you end up with, you know, variable levels like variable levels. Yeah. Exactly. So it's annoying. Uh, either way, you've got we total need control. Then. I need a headset. Okay. I've, we've talked about this yeah. before, probably 20 podcasts ago. I, One of us is supposed yeah. to make Jay go buy them. I think once we had found out that people were actually going to listen, like podcast two, I think we had made this decision. Mm-hmm. We needed headsets. Yeah, well. some point, we'll get them. It is what it is. In the meantime, we're just going to depend on our scintillating content to keep us going. Yeah, right. Okay. Hi, I'm George Tekmichev here with Steve the Big Cat Anderson for another Easton podcast, uh, another Easton Target Archery podcast, and Steve has been whooping it up again. Uh, you just got back from Yankton, and you are literally getting on an airplane in a few hours to fly to USA Nationals. This is true. Yeah. yeah. So uh, recap, you went to OPA. Yeah, I went to OPA. Finished about 10th, uh, yeah. took home a check, and then got on an airplane, went to Yankton. Yep. And... Um, didn't you had a good mind. shot at Shooter of the Year, you versus Jesse Broadwater. Yeah. If you'd finished ahead of Jesse, you would have been Shooter of the Year, I think. Right. Yeah, vice Je- versa. Jesse beat me by about, I don't know, 10 points or so. Okay. Well, that's not a huge yeah. number given the, the total point base that's used to decide Shooter of the Year. So you're pretty much Shooter of the Year runner-up. Congratulations to our good friend Jesse Broadwater, yeah. who was Shooter of the Year for the NFAA. You know, they're changing Shooter of the Year now. Oh, what's going to happen next? Well, I think they I think they looked at the situation we had here. So, I mean, you had basically is, three people is, in the running, right? There was four or five, really, and this is kind of self serving on my part. Um, but it is, you know, it's kind of disappointing because I still feel I had the best season of anybody. You know, Jesse Jesse uh, won, and that's great, and I have no bones about Jesse winning, but. He had one finish in the top 10 in the NFAA series. I never finished out of the top five, and I won two of the events. You know, So they're changing it now, next year, because they saw, how, they saw this coming into fruition. And uh, next year it'll be a points awarded based off of your placement. So a waiting factor. Yeah, so I wouldn't have even had to shoot the fifth event to win Shooter of the Year. Mm, okay, well, congratulations to our good friend, Jesse yeah. Broadwater. <laughs> And and uh, and that's the way that uh, it went this year. And you know, you shot well. You also shot well and and um, very prominently in a lot of international events as well. Uh, you know, coming off of your world championship last year, any regrets about not going to not going to World Games? Nope, not at all. No. Congratulations to our good friend uh, Stefan Hansen for winning that one. And uh, that was that was a solid performance from Stephen. Yeah, he shot awesome. Yeah, just I mean, just shooting a, good this year. He had a one fifty eleven x. Yeah, I mean, he's having a good year. You, you have to assume anymore. There are two places on the podium, Stephens and two others. Yeah, maybe. I, that's how I'm looking at it. right Question: now. Which which step? But yeah, yeah, exactly. But yeah, if you're looking at top three, and you know what, Mike has been on a number of those as well. Yeah, Mike Schlusser. Yep. Yeah. So it's pretty crazy right now. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, the the level has gotten yeah. so good at your in your category men's compound you know and and part of it of course is you know the fact that you've got people very comfortable with that 50 meter round 
Yeah, it's 50 meter round, too easy. Well, you know, I won't debate that. Too easy to separate the, the, the... Too difficult to have a strong separation between first and 10th. Might the be best shooter can't it. separate themselves over 15 arrows. Right. Where it's decided. In so qualification, you, either, you see the separation. You either need more arrows or more distance, I guess, is what more it comes distance. down to. Give us, like I said in our last podcast, give us 70 meters. How do you think the women would feel about that? I don't know. People are they're so egotistically attached to their score, and we've talked about how amateurs are, you know, it's bad for the amateurs to, to make the game harder, but it's just a number, right? It's all... It's all relevant to what you're shooting. Yeah, but, you know, I remember how hung up I was, you know, until I broke it. I was really hung up on 1,300. Yeah, because you know, that's, that had been the, the That was the benchmark. Yeah. You know, that was what. Let's change the game and give new benchmarks. Well, and that's happened, you know. Think about it. If you're it not has. shooting 1,350 in recurve now, you're, you're not going to be a contender. And that's the natural progression, though. And 700 you know? was what it started out with in your category, and now it's 710. Right. Arguably. Yeah, there was 18 of the 24 guys at World Games shot a 700. Okay. So It's pathetic. Well, it's not pathetic. It's it's a good indicator of where both the technique, technology, and shooter confidence has, has really, you know, yeah. gotten people to... I just think to... we should probably look at what Recurve has, and that's room and, and a higher ceiling rather than... A, so 70 know, meters and a smaller target, and you'd be happier. 70 meters at the... 80 or the 92. Okay. I think everybody would like that. Better. Okay. I don't know if I don't know if anybody prints 92s besides Maple Leaf. Right. Yeah, it'd be a but, new you know, target. Yeah, but whatever. Okay. Well, not to not to belabor the point, but I think I understand your point and I, make 700 great again. Okay. Then it would be if you if you increase the distance to 70 meters, there's no question about mm-hmm. that. Uh, let's uh, jump into the questions, but before I do that, I know that quite a few people are eagerly awaiting news about our uh, Facebook giveaway on the Easton Target Archery Facebook page, where this week um, Jay arranged to give away one of the Easton Olympic quivers that were made for the USA Olympic team that went to Rio in 2016. And those were signed by the members of the team. Um, So Mackenzie Brown and the boys signed a quiver, and we're going to be giving that away. And we've randomly selected. Jay took all the names of the entrants put them in Excel, and used a random number generator to pick the winner. And we'll announce that at the end of the podcast. So uh, just uh, just a heads up for those of you waiting to, to hear about that. And you can jump ahead to the end if you really need to. Because here come the questions that we've uh, gotten from our uh, loyal listeners um, posting to Facebook. And we're going to start with Ed McNicholas, who after getting whooped by Steve in the first round of Gator Cup matches, decided to step up his setup. He is uh, now shooting a Halon X Comp at 29.5 inch draw and is going to be setting up some 380 X10 Pro Tours. What would be a good starting point for point, weight, and length in this setup? So, our good friend Braden Galantine jumped right in uh, on, on Facebook and helped to answer this question, um, mentioning that for that similar setup, he's had good luck with the X10 350 with three inches off the back and 20 inches of, uh, you know, of arrow shaft overall. And uh, Steve, any thoughts? Um, yeah, I think Braden's going to be the one to, to give the advice. Yeah, especially I, with the Matthews setup. Yeah, when Braden got into that setup, it was before we had the Pro Tour 340. I think I would stick with the Pro Tour 340. Uh, Ed goes on to say he already has some 380 Pro Tours, so it's certainly worth trying. I mean, 
pull four pounds off of it and and see what you get. I'll just if, say if Braden Galantine, yeah, if Braden Galantine's going to give you that advice, that's gold right there. Yeah. And I wouldn't I wouldn't ever presume to to try to add on that because he knows right. far more about it than quite frankly either of us. Yeah, and if the the 380s are too weak out of that that particular bow, you know, drop drop a few pounds and see what happens. So Ed, thanks for the question and Braden, thanks for jumping in there and uh, and helping it out. Uh, David Keogh, uh, George, I love it when you get technical about material science. Boy, there's a line I never hear. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Can you tell us a little more about design failures at Easton? I know engineering is about failure and iterating on the design until you achieve the desired outcome. How many shafts have you guys tested that never made it, like a Carbon two or the Semi Pro Tour? <laughs> I don't know if engineering is about failure. I, I think, you know, design, designing to performance level is a function of what we try to do and then if that doesn't work out which is pretty rare to be brutally honest um you know then we'll we'll do whatever's needed now i've had two things that i can think of right off the top of my head that that fit what you're talking about back in the mid 90s i thought hmm you know this 3d thing is starting to take off i think we should be making a large diameter ac arrow to work for the 3d guys and so uh, realizing that this would have about a 100 spine, I decided to try an alternate material to carbon to, to make that arrow. And uh, that did not work out. I, I used a Vectran composite. And, and what we got was the amazing gummy arrow. It, you could bend it in any shape you wanted. It was awesome. <laughs> and it would come right back, you know. And, but it was, uh, I mean, it would, you'd bend it and it would stay bent. And then you'd straighten it, it would stay straight. What I'm trying to say is it, it acted like a gummy bear. <laughs> so, so that didn't work out. You put it in the target, and it's going to be whatever it last uh-huh. yeah, vibrated to. Yeah, so it was quite fascinating, really, because that was unexpected. And then, um, really, no, there haven't been any other, you know, that was a failure because, you know, in theory, it would have worked just fine. But in practice, it didn't. So Yeah, I would say the only things I can think of are, you know, experimenting with processes and, and altering some stuff to, to make them better. But yeah, you know, generally with the materials we use, we kind of have a pretty good idea of what's what and no major surprises anymore. Since yeah. Your gummy bear arrow. Well, and you know, we did, we did some things where we were trying to, you know, we spent a lot of uh, time and effort on alternate adhesive systems to epoxies uh, for, for, for carbon fiber uh, stuff, and some of them worked, and some of them didn't work, and uh, yeah, a lot of R and D money went into some of that stuff that you know didn't necessarily generate a product. Some of it generated products that you use today, and some of it it never generated a product at all. So, Jim Easton uh, is a big one for investing or reinvesting into R and D and coming up with better stuff. And sometimes it pays off, and sometimes it doesn't. Hmm. Also, David uh, says, "Why do you make steel and tungsten points, but aluminum knock pins?" Because if we made a steel knock pin, David, if you hit it, it would uh, it would destroy the arrow because it would just transfer the energy into the arrow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the aluminum's nice and soft. Yeah, the aluminum is relatively um, more absorptive of the energy. Think of it like a bumper on a car, and and as a result, I'd rather destroy an aluminum knock pin than destroy an arrow. Aaron Christmas, hey Steve, I know you say you're a terrible aimer, but what helped you become so steady? How do you practice when you practice? Um. <laughs> Usually I, uh, I don't do any you know crazy practice routines. I just go and if I'm getting ready for a 50-meter tournament, I probably shoot a 50-meter tournament. If I'm getting ready for, say, Redding, I, 
I have the redding dots, put them on a target. There I will shoot a little bit over distance. So if it's a 20 yard dot max, I might shoot it at 25 and so forth for the rest of the sizes. Um, getting steady at aiming, I don't know. I think it's, you know, maybe just uh, God given ability. I, I don't know, honestly. I, I think I think being steady with aiming is more to do with your mental ability to be patient with your sight picture, not try to anticipate the shot, and you know not have any of those uh, TP moments creeping in. Uh, honestly, I think that's what contributes to steady aiming. And Aaron's also looking to see what you're doing differently on the prevail than on the podium. Um which may or may not be a good question for, for the podcast because I don't know how much detail that requires. Yeah, honestly, I have set up all my Hoyt bows the same way um, since about 2011, 2010, since I started shooting them. So not a whole lot different. Um, you know, I think I'm standing up the top cam just a little bit more, not leaning it as much. A but, resistance uh, stabilizer setup, one that requires you to pull against a certain amount of weight. Yeah, same same as what I had, really. Um, maybe a couple more ounces on the front bar, but that's about it. Yeah, I'm going to jump to another question here that's sort of related, and I seem to recall it coming up here somewhere. It was someone asking about uh, aftermarket um, draw stop pegs. I know I saw it here somewhere. What do you think of aftermarket draw stop pegs? Um, well, you have some companies like Pro Stop and others. Uh, I think our tech made one um i just use the standard hoyt peg well i don't use the standard hoyt peg i use the old standard hoyt peg which was the rubber covered it just makes it just a touch softer now there were three colors that i recall do you yeah. you know which one you're talking about uh well you know going way back when there was a a white peg that was hard uh-huh. then they went to a black peg which had a rubber cover same size and that's the one I use. Then they have a larger diameter red peg, which has got the rubber cover as well. Now they have the original spiral peg, but instead of white, it's black. Um, so just depending on, you know, it's a tiny change in feel, but I, I prefer that little bit softer peg. So. And that question came from Daryl, by the way. Thank you, Daryl, for, uh, yep. for that question. Um, so a couple of stabilizer questions. Uh, we're going to start with one that came from Robert, and he's asking, on the coaching side of things, how do you determine a starting length for a front stabilizer for a youth or even an adult archer? So uh, first off, I'm going to start with the adult archer. I don't necessarily like the idea of throwing a stabilizer directly on a youth setup, but oftentimes that starting length is partly a function of how tall that person is. And I know that sounds crazy, but you got to rest that bow between shots and having a stabilizer that allows you to reach the ground with the tip of the stabilizer so you can rest the bow is actually quite handy. And, um, so that's a reasonable way to do it. Yeah. It's in my head, 27 or 30 and that's on the compound. I know with recurve there's extensions and yeah. V bars and everything yeah. else that can add, but. And if you're talking um, about a youth shooter, then, you know, even a 24 might be appropriate depending right. on how tall they are. Yeah, my, my general rule of thumb is stay within a couple inches of the draw length. Yeah, that's actually a reasonably good way to look yeah. at it. I wouldn't take a 25-inch draw and throw a 30-inch or 33-inch bar on there. That's no. a, that's a but, lot for them. But a 27 overall length might be just about right. Yep, exactly. You know, And again, I know that sounds crazy, but, you know, just being able to rest the bow between shots or, you know... Um, 
that that's actually important, believe it or not. Okay, um, on to some more uh, big picture how we conduct archery type things. Uh, Rahafazan is asking. Um, he saw an article uh, that Brady Ellison's opinion is that field archery should or can replace target archery for the Olympic Games. Do we echo his sentiment? No. I, I don't think so. Common people always say the TV viewership and logistics are the determining factor, but here's my take. It can be done for golf for the latest Olympics. It can be done for field archery as well. Yeah, easy to say, hard to do, Rafasan. Um, first of all, golf and, and field archery, nothing alike from the standpoint of camera coverage. No, we can't compare our sport to golf ever. And we should so, aspire in some things to be like golf, you know, in terms of prize money. <laughs> yeah, that's That'd not realistic. Nice. But I think, you know, appearance and professionalism and that sort of stuff. I, I would love to dress like a golfer and not like a bass fisherman. I agree. Um, and I'm pushing for that. But that's about where I draw the line on our comparison to golf. Right. Beyond that, I mean, first off, there, we're, we have Olympics, Olympic archery right now. Let's be happy with that. I see no reason to take away the target archery game. This is archery in its most simple form to me. Shoot at 70 meters, shoot the bullseye, right? Um, to complicate that for a viewer by throwing in field archery and the many rules and, and different things involved there doesn't seem like a step forward. I, I don't see field archery as a step forward. I think it's a better game, yes. I just don't think it's a better uh, game for the the Olympic viewer who's watching on TV. You know, we've got ourselves a great opportunity with the mixed team event to to do even more for the current existing format in terms of television coverage and interest around the world for our sport. And I think um, it isn't broken. And um, with all due respect to our good friend Brady, I'm not even sure Brady really truly believes that field archery is the way to go for the Olympics. I, I think he might like to see it as a separate thing. I think a lot of people would but not to replace target. All right. Um, we've got a barebow question, and I'm going to be brutally honest and tell you, Ben, I have no idea what the answer to your question is. Do you have any suggestions on choosing appropriate arrow spine for barebow string walkers? I imagine that greater crawls will have different effects on arrow spine, so how to find that happy medium? I don't We aren't the guys, no. Ben. I Go wish on. we were, but... <laughs> yeah. But we, neither of us shoots barebow. Neither of us actually, you know, deals with barebow a whole lot. So I, we're just not qualified to answer. Sorry. Um, we've got a question from, uh, from Mark. What are the pluses and minuses for stainless and tungsten points in X10s for recurve use? And how do you take into account the different points when selecting an arrow spine if you want to keep the same overall arrow length due to the totally different point length? So, um, Mark, there's uh, two answers to your question. Uh, on the last part of your question. First, why stainless versus tungsten? Why tungsten versus stainless? Tungsten points were developed more than anything else for people who've got to shoot into really hard target materials like Stramit or Edgerton-type target mats that are made from wound straw, things of that nature, stuff that stops arrows in a very short distance. Because those bend the stainless points. They can, or they, they, they bent the original stainless points. The current stainless point is a 12L14 precipitation hardened stainless steel, very strong material, uh, which has been heat treated in a sophisticated manner. It is extremely good. It's harder to bend than the previous models, but, uh, and that's been the case for about 10 years now. But 
the um, extreme situations that you still see in a lot of European target scenarios. You don't see this in Japan. You don't see this so much in places where they shoot into, you know, into uh, foam targets. Well, you, you do see this in England, in the UK, um, and also in Italy. So, you know, that is where tungsten points come into their own by saving arrows. Um, as far as performance goes, you're going to have some people out there, a couple of notable coaches that insist that it works better for FOC purposes or whatever. And I'm just, no, that's no, just not, not within a reasonable number, which is something that you can actually measure. Um, how do you take the different points into account when selecting an arrow spine? Well, just keep in mind that, you know, the steel point having a longer shank inside the arrow is going to make things a little stiffer mechanically than the tungsten point, all things else the same. But I'm going to point out also that you've got a very powerful tool at your disposal for recurve use, as you point out, and that is weight adjustment. A tiny amount of weight adjustment is enough to make up for any difference you're going to see between mm -hmm. those two points. So yep. I, don't, I don't think you have to really worry too much about it, Mark, unless you're you know, on the very bare edge of tunability. And even then, you can still fix it with weight yeah. adjustment. Yeah, you know, out of a compound, I actually shot some side by side exact same shaft length everything was built the same just the point difference and um you know other than than uh how much was sticking out in front of the riser the uh they'll group together yeah, all day group, long yeah, they group together now I, I i didn't go and test these over you know a thousand arrows each or anything like that I'm, i mean so i can't say whether one has a definitive advantage over the other but for the 18 arrows or so I shot with them it was enough to know that hey these are close enough to to not have to worry about one or one being a couple clicks lower or higher on the site than the other so and that being said I do like shooting the tungsten point because they don't go wonky well that's true tungsten points do tend to hold up pretty well um, you can probably for one set of tungsten points they'll probably go through five dozen arrows yeah you know and, and arrows last a lot long, a lot longer as well. So, I have to uh, remind people that sometimes. Yeah, I can imagine. You know, points come out. Yeah, they, shafts wear out. Points points come out. come out and get put back into new arrows if you want to. And I'll tell you what: if I were paying retail for tungsten points, that's exactly what I'd be doing. If I were absolutely, yeah. Christopher, can you please comment on what the difference is between the carbon used for axis shafts and the carbon used for hex shafts? Yes, I can, but then I'd have to kill you. <laughs> Honestly, why it's do you considerably that? different? It is. It's yeah. considerably different. Completely different processes. Um, you know, just not the same. But other than that, it's pretty much a trade secret that we're going to keep close to the chest. Just because we can. All right. Hey, we've got an announcement for a winner. You want to hear the news? Who won the Olympic quiver? Yeah, I guess. I mean, okay. I, I could step out for a little while. No, no. Our, uh, our, more time. our winner is Pamela Walker from Pennsylvania. So congratulations, Pamela. And uh, Jay Jensen from, uh, from Easton will be in touch with you to uh, work out the details of getting you your prize. Very nice. Awesome. Yeah, those are pretty nice quivers. And they've been signed by the Rio Olympic team. And uh, my, my, my coach, Dick Tone, <laughs> got on our Facebook and kind of excoriated us for not having – not having uh how come it wasn't you know because here's the deal we we did this quiver giveaway in order to commemorate the 25th anniversary of the barcelona flaming arrow the eastern arrow that was used to light the cauldron 
at the stadium in Barcelona back in 92. So, you know, uh, Dick gets on there and he's like, well, how come you guys haven't gotten the quiver signed by the members of the 92 Olympic team? Well, among other things, because that's not convenient. <laughs> I have no idea where a couple was, of those people live anymore. And We had this quiver. We were doing a giveaway. Yeah. That day seemed like a good day. Yeah. There was not, no, the two were mutually exclusive. True, but although I, you know, it would have been cool to have a quiver with the names of the 92 Olympic team on there, you know. Someone would have complained that that quiver wasn't made when they were shooting in the Olympics. So oh. the, the plan B was to go see if Jay Bars would give us the quiver that he shot back in 92, but I wasn't going to ask. He said pound sand. Well, he would have. Yeah. Yeah, and I wouldn't have blamed him. So, you know, and then one Carlos Holgado, one of the gold medalists, he's not going to give us his quiver. You know, probably wouldn't either. I, I, and and Sebastian Flute, not a chance. So yeah. you know, I mean, it it comes down to availability. Guy asked me if he could buy my yellow podium. Really? Yeah. They don't make a yellow podium, no. do they? So yours is special. I said he could buy it, yes, but he didn't want to pay the price. Okay. Do you do you do you know the story of uh, Daryl Pace after the, I think it was the '96 Olympic Games. A guy, and I think the fellow was from Japan, begged him to sell him his backup bow the backup bow uh-huh how much so it was a large amount i don't know what the number Five was figures yeah well no four figures you know like over a thousand dollars in 1996 or sorry 1976 which was a chunk of change you know yeah so it'd be it'd be like five thousand dollars now yeah Probably. So Daryl sold him the bow. I would sell him the bow all day. Backup bow? Yeah. And, you know, this was a carbon bow. It was the, the only carbon bow uh, that Earl Hoyt had made for this particular purpose. And uh, it also had some special glass. And um, the word is, the word on the street is it broke after about a week. <laughs> so, bummer. Yeah, bummer. So I uh, just thought that was, that's what can happen if you're shooting something that's a prototype and somebody thinks oh i've got to have that there's no warranty on stuff like that there's yeah. probably no warranty on your yellow bow no even no. though it's a normal yellow bow no a normal bow i should say i'm gonna drive that thing into the into the wall it's gonna hang there and that's gonna be its rest that'll be place. the yellow bow yep. so you're getting ready to head to usa nationals new venue yeah i uh, not far from indianapolis Something like that, 20, 30 minutes north. Looks like we might have some rain. Not a chance. Are you kidding? Come on, a USA Nationals yeah. with rain? How could that happen? Lightning delay, I'm sure. No. Pah. Far from it. Come on. Yeah. What are you talking about? That know. never happens. Never. We'll see. We'll see. You know, last year, we couldn't have had better weather. You know? seven eighteen weather. Yeah, but that was a different place. But the year before that, in that same place, we bar- we didn't finish the tournament. You know, it got... Got lightning stormed out. Yeah, because there's so. just no telling what's going to happen. Yeah, no, we're going to we're going to Indianapolis. And, it looked uh, like a nice venue, though. The team goes straight from from Indianapolis to uh, Berlin. So after Berlin, season's kind of starting to wind down. I still yeah. have a couple USAT events. I mean, we're not even halfway through the USAT season. That's crazy. The World Championship is coming up uh, in Mexico yeah. City in September. There's a World Cup final that's going to take place. Yeah. So hopefully, I'm shooting in the World Cup final. You're in the contention for World Cup final. Yeah. I presume you're going to go to the World Championship to support Linda, if nothing else. Um, I'm also on the team, so. Uh huh. So. <laughs> yeah, I will. I will go there to compete. Quite frankly, I couldn't remember if you were on the team or not, so I, want, <laughs> I wanted to kind of sideways get into that. Yeah. No, I think um, this seems like this lull. You know, after 
Salt Lake, even at the start, from the start of Salt Lake, it seemed like a, my my uh, year kind of changed a little bit, and there's a little lull, some dog days, I guess you'd call them here this summer, and um, I'm just trying to grind through, and when we hit when we hit September, you know, if, if I'm in on the World Cup final, it's go time there because that would be go win three matches, and um, that would be nice. No question about that. And then, then I think I'm going to put the hammer down and actually train and stuff leading up to uh, World Championships. Once that's done, it'll be my final era. Like, my last era at World Championships, that's all I got. That's all I got for the rest of the outdoor season. Like, for this particular yeah, one. You're I'll, not going to just done. quit. Maybe. I don't know. Okay. You know, I know a guy that uh, on the last – he shot his last arrow at a World Championship – and just put his gear down and walked away. I mean, didn't put his bow away, left yeah. it on the field. Yeah, it's like the Rulon Gardner, you know, when he, the guy who won the... Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, the wrestler, right? The wrestler. Yeah. From Idaho? He's from... I can't remember if he's from Idaho or Wyoming. Wyoming. That, uh, One of those. Somewhere in that area. Yeah. But, uh, you know, his final match, he left his shoes in the ring, which I think is a thing for wrestling. You know, what if I... Uh, what if I just left my bow at like the Vegas shoot off or just, take, I'm just your, done. take your arrows and bust them over your knee and just drop them on the ground and walk away. <laughs> I'll just leave them in the target. I won't even bother pulling. Them oh yeah. That, that would be the that thing would be to do. The iconic way to go. Yeah. Just leave them in the target. Yeah. yeah I'm not sure how I'm going to do it yet. You know, when it, when it comes time, I'm not sure when time is, but I can just see our, our Facebook exploding with rumors of, of your <laughs> retirement now. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's something you got to think about. The travel is hard on a guy, and I think once you've had a chance to, you know, re-energize after the season, because this is a tough time right now. You're you're between events. You've been on the road for six weeks straight, and I think you know once you've had a chance to kind of take the off season and maybe do a few other things, you'll you'll either, I mean, it's it's a it's a binary decision. You'll either do it or you won't. But I have yeah. a feeling I think you. No, will. I'll still be at it. I'm not you know retiring it's uh it's just interesting you know you look at a guy like like old dave you know dave cousins 22 years he's been at this real wild yeah and, they, and dave Braden still picking up a win yeah ah uh, you know i i know i know there's lots of guys on the the team currently yeah dave by the way won the uh nfaa field nationals in yankton yeah. this past week so that was great shooting from our friend dave yeah, and you know you get a guy you look at that and he's significantly slimmed down the number of events that he does and uh, he goes to events. He's competitive. I think that's kind of the way you got to do it. You got to you got to taper off a little bit to where you're you're um, not killing yourself with travel and lack of prep. You can go and try to like right now. I'm I'm looking at the season. I'm not sure how many events I'm going to end up shooting this season. Probably 20, 25. And I'm thinking, you know, how many of those was I truly great at, and how many was I just there? And if I if I were to take that number, let's say I, let's say I was great at ten of them, twelve of them. Let's say I do twenty-four events and I'm great at twelve. Whether that means I win or lose or not is different, but whether I feel like I could have is another thing. You know, last weekend I don't know that I felt I could have won. It was it was hard to be prepped for that one. Um, so let's say it's twelve events. Now, what if I slim down the schedule to sixteen or eighteen events, and I can now better prepare and be great at all of them? You know, no, you make fewer, a, fewer events, but you make a good point. Quality. You know, it is quality over quantity, right? 
Yeah, you know, sometimes people talk about what's called profitless prosperity. What is that? That's when you sell a lot of stuff, but you don't make any money on it. Mm-hmm. If you shoot a lot of stuff, but you don't necessarily perform at your potential, is that sort of profitless in a way? You know, you could argue differently on that, I guess. You know, as a professional archer, it. it's not it's not always I mean, there's a lot of experience you take with it too, right? So you got to go do this. You were you're at the event with your friends or whoever or you got to see a little bit of the place, you know. So like like I've been to ten or eleven World Cups now and there's really not a lot of money in those, but those experiences I'll never regret it doing that, you know, whether I mean, it's by, by far cost me a lot more than I've ever made to shoot the World Cups. Sure. But then again, if you think about it from a it. certain perspective, it's kind of also good for your day job to be at those events, you know, as a shooter or just attending. It's kind of it kind of goes with the territory. Yeah, I'm I'm a rare case, so I'm gonna look at it as just a professional. Sure, sure, standpoint. understood. Yeah. So. In fact, I mean, we've had this conversation before. I, if you're a professional archer, the World Cup is almost unsustainable because the, the, the money payback is just not close to what it needs to be to make it worthwhile yeah. when you have some other stuff like, say, OPA going on. Yeah, you, you figure... Sooner or later, that's going to be in conflict you know, with, with no, the schedule. I, I, think they under, I think the World Archery starts to understand that, at least on the compound side, the World Cup is not lucrative. You know, you can... Let's say you're self-funding your way to a World Cup, which a lot of people do. Uh, you go to four of them. I figure you're in them three grand average each. Some of those four grand. You know, some maybe are a little cheaper. So, so you're at yeah, twelve thousand. Let's remember 000. here in the U.S., you're paying your own way for that. So you're about twelve thousand bucks a year in expense to go to World Cups. You win one. You win one, and manufacture, which is extremely hard to do extremely hard and your manufacturer's contingency the payment from world archery um doesn't add up to twelve thousand bucks no it comes out to more like maybe six or eight yeah i mean some manufacturers you know they might pay a little more but and that's for outright win yeah that's if you win so to break even you've got to win one or podium two or three times that's That's just uh, to break even that's not to pay the bills that's not to do all the other stuff that's got to be done when you're you know, if you're a professional archer for real, like a Rio Wild or, um, you know, Jesse Broadwater or a few other, a very short list, you've got to be really thinking about making sure that you have an extra zero behind some of those payments. <laughs> it, uh, yeah, I mean, it doesn't, doesn't add up when you can, you can stay here domestically, shoot an ASA and make as much just from the organization as you will from the entire tournament a recurve tournament in korea that just took place pays something like eighty thousand dollars for first place yeah for recurve yeah it's crazy you know so yeah i'm not sure you know the world cup will always have its place but it's gonna it's gonna change you're gonna see people who just based on the economics are gonna have to start staying away from them and you know the world cup itself is a very expensive thing to put on as you know for an organizer yeah I don't know. We don't. We we haven't talked to Tom Dillon about any of this, and you know, this is not based on insight. It's just based on, on opinion. Yeah, it's my personal opinion. I mean, if I'm if I was doing this purely for money, I wouldn't 
I wouldn't go to a World Cup. Yeah. Well. I wouldn't ever leave the United States. I think we both agree, though, the World Cup is a very good thing overall for the sport from the standpoint of exposure. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, a, lot of, a lot of people watching it on YouTube and watching it on Eurosport and on NBC Sports here in the U.S., and so it's a it's been a tremendous thing for the sport, but for the participants, maybe at least on the compound side, um, maybe needs a little bit of a, a rethink, potentially. Well, you know, I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna come to them and say, hey, you got to do this because, again, that would be pretty self serving. I mean, they're they're well. The doing other consideration is no matter what happens, there's always going to be somebody who wants to shoot it. Yeah, somebody's going to. So somehow you're going to have you know. Th- that asset in place and by all means their greatest asset is the people who are participating no doubt so it's just interesting the you know the options that are out there right now for for competition and in a you know a tournament like opa really changes the way people look at at uh stuff like that so so do you see the uh the deal between uh, los angeles and paris i saw that yeah okay uh, my thoughts on that are simply Either either one was a winner. Either either city would have done a great job. I personally would prefer to have seen it in L.A. for personal reasons, not for logistics or other reasons, just strictly because um, I think it would have been nice to have it in L.A. And mm-hmm. I think it'll be great to have it in Paris, too. Um, I believe that either organization could do a great job. This is a win-win situation. But I think L.A. ends up with a big win because they've got a legacy now. You know, they, they yeah. cut a deal with the IOC that's going to be significant from the standpoint of sport growth. You know, the Easton Foundation, ESDF-1, was set up after the 84 Olympic Games and, and has done a lot in the Los Angeles area. But this is a whole different level. Well, and, and you know, with 11 years to prep, I think L.A. is going to have a pretty good one. I hope so. Yeah. So, and you know. and um, yeah, I was actually listening to some of this on the radio coming into work today and you know the the radio announcer made a good point he said well they've got these two figured out you know so to now we have tokyo paris la and they're pretty confident those will work both for the games and beyond economically you know but what what is a city like you know rio or for the winter games like sochi if you're a city getting ready to put in a bid and you look at those I mean, is it even? Do you even consider it feasible now? I think I think the potential for Olympic cities is shrinking and shrinking and shrinking to where it's only going to be hosted at a you know maybe a five six city rotation. I told you what would happen if I were king. If I were king, there'd be four cities and it would rotate between them. And one of those cities would be Tokyo, and one of those cities would probably be Paris, and one of those cities would probably be L.A. and then maybe Sydney, you know, and Mm -hmm. whatever uh, or Beijing or whatever, but. I believe that that would be more sustainable than this current model. Yeah. So, and, and I think the Summer Olympics is obviously, and I'm not exactly you know, making any profound statement with this, but Summer Olympics is obviously a little more sustainable. Feels to me like the Winter Olympics may die. Well, the Winter Games themselves have good ratings on TV. I don't know about that. Plus, it's only 20% the size of the Summer Games mm. from the standpoint of logistics and the number of athletes and all that stuff. So just seemed like they had a hard time getting anyone to take the next Winter Olympics. Well, they've got some places that are scheduled that you wouldn't normally associate with winter sports. I agree with you. Like Beijing. Uh, precisely. Yeah. So, and, you know, the next one's Pyeongchang, and uh, that one's 
you know, a place that probably if you're a ski buff in Korea, you know about, but I, I you know, I don't associate it. A place like Lilyhammer, on the other hand, or, you know, um, some of the premier sites in France or in even in, in Idaho that have hosted the Winter Olympics in the past make more sense on a certain level. But, you know, like anything else, it's a function of, uh, you got, it's a two-way street. IOC can't just imperate who does the Olympics, and you can't just have the Olympics if you want them. You've got to work for it. So Yeah, you know, what I saw in the last one, I think it was maybe Helsinki was a part of the bid for Winter Games. And when they saw what the IOC's requests were, they laughed at them and said, we're, we're out. Well, it's a big deal to... I think uh, IOC got caught with their pants down. Well, it's a big deal to meet what the IOC's expectations are, for sure. It's not yeah. easy, right? Yeah. I and mean, there's a lot. There's a, there's a, but you have to understand the IOC is stewarding a major... I'm going to call it... Uh, this is a little bit... Uh, uh, it's an industry, right to itself it's a it's a business of itself and it's a huge one you know billions and billions of dollars are at at stake for stakeholders for television rights holders for you know the cities that are involved for the athletes of course there's the time and the effort and the energy and all that stuff and oftentimes we talk about the athletes last when we're talking about this kind of thing but the reality is you know it starts with the athletes and works its way up the chain and ultimately it's a privilege to put on the games, and that's the way the IOC wants it. So, you know, if Helsinki didn't want to meet the requirements, there's going to be somebody that does. Beijing, baby. Well, and they've got the money to do it, so. <laughs> Need a lot of snow machines. Well, <laughs> you know, it's like Denver. People go to Denver to ski. No, you don't. You don't go to Denver to ski. Nah. You know how far away the ski areas are from Denver? Right. If you don't know, it's a shocking thing the first time you encounter it. Probably all at least an hour. You're way better off coming to Salt Lake City to ski, by the way. Right. You know? You're talking an hour and a half to get to anything from Denver, you know? So, anyway. Yeah, and that, you know, realistically, for anyone who thinks the Olympics are all, you know, right here in this area. No. For me to get from archery to basketball would have been about hour and 45 minutes. Now, Tokyo is going to be real. Tokyo is going to be pretty good, you know, because of the sort of the Olympic circle thing that they've got going on. I trust their train system pretty well to, oh, yeah. to handle it. So. Yeah, yep. you've seen it firsthand now, so you understand why I never rented a car when I went to Tokyo. Yeah, it would be great. It would be <laughs> great. I may, I may actually, you know what, just take some vacation and go to that one. I don't know. Yeah, it might, we'll be, might be worthwhile. No doubt about that. All right, Steve, you've got a flight to catch. So um, any last thoughts before you head off to USA Nationals? No. All right, well, we'll see you when you get back from Berlin at this rate, which means I've got to figure out a, either a solo podcast for the next one or, or see if I can't get Doug Denton to actually follow through and come over here and do a podcast yeah, with me. bring old Doug over. I think that would be fun, don't you? What worries me is Isaac wants to do a podcast. Yeah, yeah just, have, just bring Doug That won't over last five Doug. minutes. Bring Doug over. I can't imagine trying to do a podcast with Isaac. Five minutes at the most. It'd be a disaster. Not even there. It would be like a toxic chemical spill. Just bring Doug over. I'm going to bring Doug over. That's the plan. All right. So okay. thanks, Steve. End of show? End of show.